0: to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. We are located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. To find out more about us, please visit our website at www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thank you for joining us today. Well, dear friends, would you open your Bibles now? We're going to continue on in our series in the book of 2 Timothy. So turn there, and our sermon text is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 14. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 14. If you're not there, you can just pause the video, find your Bible, get there, because we're going to be taking a close look at this text. So let's hear the Word of God. Starting in verse 8, Paul writes, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, ...nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher... Which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And so, Father, we do ask that you would bless the the reading and the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus says to us, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We began this sermon series on the book of 2 Timothy with these words from Jesus. And we learn from these words of Jesus that Jesus has a mission for the church. And that mission is to make disciples, to make learners of Jesus. And so as we began this sermon series on 2 Timothy, we asked the very simple question, well, what does this look like practically in the life of the church? And so we're going to 2 Timothy, this book, looking for answers. And we find answers by looking at this book. So Paul writes to his spiritual son, Timothy. And so last week, we took a look at verses 1 through 7. And in these first seven verses, we learned what Paul was after. He commanded Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God. Timothy must be eager. He must be ready to to take action in the ministry that God has called him to. He must use the gift, reuse the gift, and have that gift working at the highest possible order. And Timothy must take action and be ready to take action because God is going to hold him accountable for how he conducts his ministry, even more his entire life. But as we saw last week, Timothy is not left without hope or help. Paul writes, encouraging Timothy, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Paul says, Timothy, all that you need... All that you need has been given to you by God. He has given you His Spirit. So press into the Spirit. Be spirit dependent. And so these opening verses raise a natural question for us. And this is our segue into our text, verses 8 through 14. Well, where should Timothy direct his earnest energy? What are Timothy's hands supposed to grab hold of? What should his mind be concerned with? What should his, his eyes lock onto? And so as we look at our text, the the answer is fairly obvious. One theme dominates verses 8 through 14. It's the gospel. And this is so helpful for us as we think through Paul's commands. Paul doesn't want Timothy to be stirred up just for the sake of being stirred up. Zeal, excitement, earnestness is not good in and of itself. Nor does Paul desire that Timothy be stirred up about the wrong thing. Timothy must be stirred up for the sake of the gospel to guard it, to believe it, to proclaim it. And as we look at our text, Paul is extremely careful to to direct Timothy's focus directly to the gospel. Paul uses several phrases to capture Timothy's attention. In verse 8, he calls the gospel the testimony about our Lord. This means that the gospel contains the facts about Jesus. Jesus really did die on the cross. Jesus really did rise again from the dead. Jesus really did ascend into heavenly places. And Jesus really will return at the end of the age to judge the living and the dead. It's a testimony about our Lord. It contains the facts about Jesus. And then Paul builds on this phrase in verse 13. And he calls the gospel the pattern of sound words. This means that the gospel is free from all error. It is devoid of all lies. This message about Jesus can be trusted. It is sound. One can poke around here and there and you won't find any rot. You won't find any decay. You won't find anything unwholesome. And then in verse 14, Paul calls this gospel the good deposit. The gospel is like a possession entrusted to man from God. And this possession entrusted to man from God is not like any possession. It is the good deposit. It is a message of exceptional value and significance. From this message, from this gospel, shines forth the very glory, beauty, and worth of God. And so Paul piles up the words about the gospel. It's the testimony about our Lord. It's the pattern of sound words. It's the good deposits. And Paul does this because he knows something about Timothy, because he knows something about us. And what does Paul know? Well, Paul knows that we have a tendency to be distracted with lesser things. We have a really hard time keeping first things first in our heart, in our life. We can just think this through. When times are good, so the wind is at your back, there's more than enough money in the bank account, you have good health, everything is neatly falling into place, there is this tendency in us to forget just how precious the gospel is and just how needy we are for it. Our stuff makes us happy. Our success fills us up. There's no longer hunger in us. We're satisfied. And so when you go to the scriptures, we find warnings against this temptation throughout. So it's interesting, you go into the Old Testament and the the people of God are are ready to inherit the promised land. They're on the edge. And what does the the Lord say to his people right before they enter in? Well, he warns them not to forget the gospel. We find these words in Deuteronomy chapter 8. The Lord says, So Paul piles up these words about the gospel, the the testimony about our Lord, the, the pattern of sound words, the good deposit, because he knows something about Timothy and because he knows something about us. And what does he know? He knows we are prone to get distracted with lesser things. We have a really hard time keeping first things first. We can just think about this. When times are really good, so the wind is at your back. There's more than enough money in the bank account. Everything is just falling neatly into place. There is this tendency in us to forget just how precious the gospel is and just how needy we are for this gospel. Our stuff makes us happy. Our, our success fills us up and then we're, we're satisfied, filled to the brim with it. And it's interesting. We When we go to the scriptures, we find warnings at all points against this. So you go into the Old Testament and we we find this warning. The people of Israel are about ready to inherit the promised land. This is what they've been waiting for. And then Moses preaches this to them. He says, Deuteronomy chapter 8, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply, and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And what is Moses saying to the people of God? Don't forget the gospel. When your stomach is full and when you've got gold and cattle, don't forget the gospel. And the Lord Jesus warns us with similar language as well when he talks about the seed that fell among the thorns. He says, They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But there is indeed another equally dangerous set of circumstances. We're in danger when times are good, but we're also in danger when times are bad. And so this time the wind is is not at your back, but it's in your face. You're, you're, You're walking uphill and the path is difficult and the way is hard. Nothing seems to be working out the way it should be. You are besieged with countless problems, one arriving after another. And when this happens to us, when times are bad, there is this tendency in us to keep away from the gospel, We get stuck in our circumstances. We just stare at them and complain about them and moan about them. And we don't run to the gospel. We don't grab hold of the gospel and apply the gospel to us as our our saving balm. And again, Jesus warns us about this condition when he talks about the seed that fell on rocky ground. Jesus says, these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear, hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but they endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And so, the word of God is pressing upon us. It's pressing upon us. Paul is interrogating us as we look into this passage. He asks us Do you have first things first? Do you know what really is important? Is it the testimony about our Lord that satisfies your soul? Is it the the pattern of sound words that that comforts you? Is it the good deposit that has you so stirred up? Is it the word of the gospel that you long to hear when you gather together with God's people? Is it this word that you're faithful to explain to your children and that you long to speak about with your friends? Is it this word that you're careful to apply to yourself and, and preach to yourself again and again and again? Or have your priorities taken a turn for the worse? Has this gospel become dull and boring to you? Has has it lost its luster and shine? And so Paul comes to us and he heaps up these words about the gospel. He makes a pile the testimony about our Lord, the pattern of sound words, the good deposits. And what Paul is saying, this is where Timothy must direct his, his energy. This is what Timothy's hands must be full of. This is what should be occupying the thoughts of Timothy's mind. This is what should always before, be before his eyes. Now, as we look back into 2 Timothy, we see that Paul isn't done yet with Timothy. Paul just doesn't point Timothy back to the gospel. He spells out in detail Timothy's responsibilities and obligations towards the gospel. And so when we look at these seven verses, we find a cluster of commands. Paul begins our text with two commands. And at the end of our text, he rounds it off. He he completes this text with another two commands. And so we need to take some time, slow down, and take a look at each one of these commands that Paul gives to his spiritual son, Timothy. And so we find the first command in verse 8. Paul writes, saying, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. What is Paul saying here? He's telling Timothy that he must not distance himself from the gospel. He must not distance himself from the gospel. And we have to understand Timothy's context. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to Gentiles. What is Paul telling us about his context, Timothy's context? Well, he's saying the world stands opposed to the gospel. There is no neutral ground. So there are the Jews, and these are the the physical children of Abraham. And these Jews, they, they trip over the gospel. It's a stumbling block. They refuse to believe that God's glorious kingdom, that God's salvation has arrived, has come in power through a crucified man. Even more, this this message is foolishness to the Gentiles. So when the Gentiles hear it, Romans, Greeks, barbarians, they mock and ridicule the truth of God. We do not believe that God raised a man from the dead. And we refuse to submit to this man who is going to come at the end of the age to judge the living and the dead. We scoff at that. That's ridiculous. But what Paul is doing here in verse 8 as he comes and he preaches in Timothy's ear, he says, Timothy, though all hate and despise this message of the gospel, you must treasure it. Do not care at all for the opinions of man. Pay no heed to the reception you get. Do not judge the value of this message by how others receive it. Do not be ashamed, Timothy. Do not separate yourself from this gospel. So that's the first command. And Paul couples it with a second command and we find the second command in verse 8. So Paul says, don't be ashamed, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now it's important that we take careful notice of Paul's wording here in verse 8. Paul could have said, don't be ashamed. Instead, go and preach the gospel. Or he could have said, don't be ashamed. Go and spread the word about Jesus everywhere you go. And those would be more palatable words to hear from Paul. But Paul doesn't say that. He says, don't be ashamed, but share in suffering for the gospel. What is this all about? Well, in the mind of Paul, faithfulness to Jesus, faithfulness to Jesus' mission is a life of suffering. And we can sharpen this idea a bit further. Gospel ministry, according to Paul, gospel ministry is suffering. And we have to parse this out. What Paul has in mind is not some form of masochism. Timothy, what you really need to do is go out in the streets and get beat up somehow because that's what matters. Rather, what Paul is doing is he's telling Timothy that gospel ministry must conform itself, must resemble the message of the gospel itself. That's what Paul is preaching in Timothy's ear Timothy, you preach a Savior who, was, who suffered and was crucified. Therefore, as a messenger of the gospel, one who speaks that message, you should expect to bear similar scars. Even more, Timothy, you must embrace and welcome those scars. You're going to begin to resemble the message of the gospel. It's going to be imprinted on your life. What Paul does here is so helpful for us because he rewires our expectations for ministry. We have this idea that when we're in the will of God, that sweet spot right where God wants us, it will be like running down the hill with the, the wind at your back, with the wind in your sails. It's going to be great. Nothing's going to be in your way. But Paul won't let us think like that. To engage in Jesus' mission is to share in suffering. To be right in the middle of the will of God is to share, to participate, to engage in suffering. The will of God for his beloved son was to suffer, and the will of God for all of God's children is to share in the same. It's what Paul does in verse 8 is he takes out his pen and he pops our unbiblical dreams of what ministry, what life is all about. We've got two commands. Don't be ashamed. Share in suffering. We find command number three in verse 13. Paul writes follow the pattern of sound words that you heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So we need to think about Timothy a bit here. We have to understand that Timothy was no stranger to the gospel. In fact, Timothy had a long history, a long acquaintance with the gospel. It was from his grandmother and mother that he learned the scripture and was primed to receive the gospel. And then he traveled with Paul for years. He traveled with Paul throughout Europe and Asia, going from synagogue to synagogue, church plant to church plant. He heard Paul preach the gospel thousands of times. And so Paul's point in verse 13 is this. Timothy, I know you're familiar with the gospel. You've heard me preach it hundreds, thousands of times. But Timothy, don't let your familiarity with the gospel create a spirit of laxity. You must, above all things, keep a firm grip on the gospel. Don't take your hands off of it, whatever you do. And this brings us to a fourth command from Paul. We find it in verse 14. Paul continues and builds off this last command, and he writes, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And guard is such a rich word to consider. So think about a shepherd. A shepherd takes his post at night and he guards. He watches over the sheep. And what is he doing? He makes sure that one of the sheep doesn't wander off. And he also makes sure that a wolf or a robber doesn't come in among the folds and destroy the sheep. He he guards the sheep. Or think about a soldier. The soldier takes his post on the walls of the city. And what is that soldier doing? He's guarding the city. He makes sure that no one climbs over the wall or or slips in through the gate so that no one disturbs or, or brings violence into the city. And so Timothy is like a shepherd. He's like a soldier. He must take up all measures to guard the gospel. He must expend his energy to ensure that this gospel message isn't watered down. He must maintain a careful watch to make sure it doesn't become polluted with some kind of foreign substance. He must stay awake so that nothing is substituted or exchanged. He must guard the gospel. That's what Paul wants for his spiritual son. And so as we look at our text, we see that Paul is piling up words. He first piles up words about the gospel. He calls it the testimony about our Lord, the pattern of sound words, the good deposit. And what's the result? Well, Paul is preaching, Timothy, you must understand just how precious the gospel is. So we've got that pile of words. And then Paul makes another pile of words. These responsibilities that that Timothy has towards the gospel. Don't be ashamed. Share in suffering, follow, guard. And what's the result? Well, Timothy, you have this tremendous responsibility towards the gospel. God has placed this great treasure in your hands. Now you must keep it and guard it and not be ashamed of it. And so we have all this in front of us. We've got these two piles, this, this gospel pile and this responsibility pile, and we need to take a step back and think all of this through. There's an equation set out here, almost like a math equation. Here's the gospel, and Timothy must guard it. And when we think about this equation, at least to me, it sounds like a a recipe for disaster. Why does it sound like a recipe for disaster? Disaster? Because it seems that the linchpin to this whole equation is bound up in Timothy. It seems that God is taking an enormous risk to entrust the glorious gospel of grace to someone like Timothy. It seems that this whole equation is set up for a failure. Here is this glorious gospel, and God is giving it to Timothy to steward in the life of the church. Just think about Timothy. Timothy is no different than you or I, He was just a a man. He was a man susceptible to sin, even gross, terrible sin. He was prone to discouragement, easily tired and worn out. He was a man with limited strength and resolve. He was a man with limited understanding of the Bible and doctrine. He was just a man. And so we think, well, this seems like a recipe for disaster. This glorious gospel being trusted to Timothy or to people like us. But this is where it really gets interesting in our text. As we look at our Bibles, and as we carefully read through and comb our text, we don't find any pessimism in the Apostle Paul. We don't find a shred of discouragement or hopelessness in Paul. Rather, we find optimism. We find hope for the future. We have to ask, well, well why What does Paul know that we don't know? What does Paul see that we can't see? Was it because Timothy had the right gifts? Or did he have the right degree hanging on the wall? Or was it it because he was mentored by the right person? Or that he had the the right personality for the work? What does Paul see about this equation that gives him hope, optimism about the future? Well, it wasn't anything about Timothy per se. No, Paul knew something about God. That's why he has hope. That's why he's optimistic. Listen to what Paul says in verse 12. I think this is the most important verse in the whole text. Paul says, But I am not ashamed. Why? For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Did you hear what Paul said? The linchpin isn't Timothy in this equation, as if the the fate of the church rests solely upon Timothy's shoulders and Timothy's abilities. Because if that were the case, all hope would be lost. The gospel would be destroyed. Destroyed. And the church would be wrecked if it was all on Timothy's shoulders. No, according to Paul, the linchpin is God himself. Paul has optimism. Paul has hope because he knows that God is guarding the gospel of grace. And that God will see to the gospel's success. And that God will see to the gospel's flourishing in this sinful and broken world. God has his hands all over this gospel all of the time. And so as we think this all through, this raises an important question for us. How did Paul get this kind of confidence? How did he get this kind of optimism? How did he get this kind of hope? And We don't ask this question out of curiosity or as a detached scholar just wanting to to know. No, we ask this question because it leads us on the road of application. We ask this question because we want to be filled with the same confidence, with the same optimism, with the same hope that Paul had. We want to operate in this world like Paul did. And so what's the answer to this question? How could Paul operate like this? Well, he got this hope, this optimism from the gospel. For Paul, the gospel message wasn't a message that he just preached to others. It was a message that he preached to himself. It was a message that he himself returned to again and again and again. It was this message that nourished him and built him up in the faith. And with this in mind, we need to look again at our text, our verses in front of us. So we've got these two piles. We've got this pile over here. It's the, the testimony about our Lord. It's the, the pattern of sound words. It's a good deposit. And then we've got this pile of commands over here. It's do not be ashamed. Share in suffering. Follow guard. And what does Paul stick right in the middle of these two piles? Or think about it a different way. Our text starts off with with two commands, and then it finishes with two commands. And what does Paul stick? Right in the middle. Just look at your Bibles, how this is laid out. He sticks right in the middle of all of this, between the piles, between the two commands, the gospel. That's what he does. And Paul is teaching us. Listen to verses 9 and 10. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What are we learning here? Well, we we find Paul's heart revealed towards Timothy. And Paul is saying this to his spiritual son. Timothy, if you want to carry out all of these responsibilities, if you're going to be found faithful in the work that God has called you to, you must do this. You must feed on the gospel of grace for yourself. It must not only be the message that you, you preach to others. It must be your food. It must be your drink. It must be your constant companion and friends. So Timothy, Timothy, sit down. And listen to me preach the gospel to you one more time. I know that you've listened to, it, listened to it hundreds of times from my mouth. But you need to hear it again. Because this is what is going to sustain you in ministry. Listen to what God has done and how he has done it. Listen again to what God has given you in Jesus. And what Christ has accomplished for you. Sit down and listen to the gospel again. That's my heart for you, Timothy. And so, brothers and sisters, this is where this all comes together for us. If we're going to be faithful to Jesus's mission, if we're going to carry out these weighty responsibilities, don't be ashamed of the gospel, share in suffering, follow, guard the gospel. How are we going to do it? How are we going to be motivated to take action? Well, the answer is right here. We need to listen to the gospel one more time. We need to sit down at the gospel banquet table and pull up the chair and grab our fork and our knife and consume the gospel for ourselves. That's the only way to move forward. That's the only path of obedience. That's the only way to fight to win the prize. And So what are we going to do? How do we need to end this sermon? We need to do it by listening to the gospel again, walking through what Paul has for us, So that we might be encouraged to press on. So look at verse 9. We'll just work through this gospel line by line. Paul begins his telling of the gospel to Timothy with these words. God saved us and called us to a holy calling. So Paul is telling us the gospel is about what God has done. What God has accomplished. When we were hopelessly lost in our sins. Bound in the chains of depravity. Held captive by Satan. Wallowing in death. God came to our rescue. He is our Savior. And he, he called us with this great power of his voice. And when he called us, he, he brought us to himself. He saved us and he called us to a holy calling. And Paul goes on, he says, not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace. This salvation that we've received from God, this holy calling, Paul says, is of pure grace. There was nothing in us that recommended us to God. God did not hold an interview with us where we could sit down in front of Him and tell God about all the great things that we have done, how great we are. We did not give God a resume. No, nothing done by us, nothing in us, nothing about us moved God to act for our good. He loved us. He saved us. He called us because of his own purpose. He he acted for our good because he decided to, because it pleased him. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Paul goes on, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages. So there are no works, there is no interview, there is no resume. In fact, we find, as Paul tells us, this whole matter of salvation was determined before you or I ever existed, before this world existed. God made up his mind about salvation before the ages. He carefully planned out every detail of salvation before we existed. The suffering of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. Even more, he gave us these lavish gifts of grace before you or I existed. This reveals that God has not only planned the details of salvation in advance, but he also carefully chose and determined each person who would taste this gift of grace in Jesus. So Paul says, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages. And Paul presses on verse 10. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as we track with Paul, the news gets better and it keeps getting better. God has not kept his plan a secret from us. Though he made this plan in eternity past and chose who would take part in this plan, he has not kept his grace hidden away from our eyes. Rather, he has set it out before us plainly. He has revealed his glorious plan. He has revealed his grace. How has he done it? Through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. What precious news. We don't have to go searching here or there to find this grace of God. We don't have to worry or or doubt. God has made his grace evident. Look to Jesus, Paul says. Look to Jesus. You find God's grace. You find God's plan. And Paul finishes with these words, his telling of the gospel. Who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is so good. This grace meets our needs. For our sin, we deserved death. Rightly and justly, death was our sentence. But Christ abolished death. And how did he abolish death? By taking the penalty of death on himself, there on the cross, Christ suffered the wrath of God for his people. He died in our stead, in our place. But we see as we look at this gospel telling that this was not the end of the story. On the third day, Christ rose again from the dead, and light shone in the darkness. And he rose to a life incorruptible and full of glory. And this is now the life he shares with all of his people. And a life that will soon swallow us all up for those of us who belong to Jesus. A life of glory and immortality. So brothers and sisters, there's the gospel again. It starts with God. It's not dependent upon our works. It was determined in ages past. It has been made evident in Jesus Christ. And Christ has met our needs. He has abolished death and he's brought to us life and immortality. And it's all there for us in the gospel. It's all there for us in the gospel. And so brothers and sisters, that's the word that will sustain you. Do you want to charge ahead in ministry? Do you want to see fruitfulness in your life? You need to go back and you need to feast on that message. That's the only way. That's how Paul lived. That's how he desired Timothy to live. And that's how he desires us to live, by the gospel. And so I ask you, will you savor this gospel message? Will you believe this gospel message? Will you guard this gospel message? Will you keep this gospel message? Will you suffer for it? And will you gladly proclaim it? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we rejoice. We rejoice. You have given us the gospel. You have made manifest Jesus, your great plan from before the foundation of the world. And we praise you. Oh, Father, would you now satisfy us with this gospel? And as we feed upon it, would you motivate us afresh for ministry? fill us with confidence, fill us with purpose that we might engage faithfully to make disciples of all nations. Would you be our help now? We pray this in Jesus' name.